Oh, good morning. If you could um, leave your Bibles open to Isaiah 63 from verse uh, 7 and I'll uh, pray for us. Uh, Father, we pray this morning that we would be, as Isaiah describes, those who uh, delight, you are delighted with because we are contrite and humble in spirit and we tremble at your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in getting ready for going overseas, I had an iPod as an effective means of storing data that I wanted to take over with that, that it wouldn't take up too much room. And a mate of mine sent, when he was preparing it for me, he put a few uh, songs on it. And one of them was a song of a few decades ago by Joan Osborne, uh, called What If God Was One of Us. And the song is a very cynical song, implying that uh, God has got it easy sitting in heaven while people suffer their way through this life. Uh, some of the lyrics go like this. If God had a name, what would it be? And what would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? And what would you ask if you had just one question? What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? And of course, it's not just cynics and unbelievers that ask that sort of question. Genuine believers have asked very similar questions. Uh, when are you going to come and establish your kingdom? When will all the blood that has been shed on this earth be accounted for? And we can see this question in a way in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 1. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. So let's see what all this means in this uh, context. You've been looking at Isaiah 56 to 66 and it's important again to remind ourselves of the context. So Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 relate to the period that Isaiah himself lived in Jerusalem under the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. This was a tumultuous time. The Assyrians were the world's superpower and under God's hand and judgment, they had come down and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. So Isaiah's job was to prophesy to the southern kingdom, particularly those in Jerusalem, to interpret this event to them and to call them to trust in uh, Yahweh, their God, and not depend on the nations and their gods. On the whole, they failed to do this. They failed to trust Yahweh, their God, and he did allow them, but he did allow them to continue on until eventually Babylon became the world's superpower, which is where chapter 39 of Isaiah ends. And of course we know that it would be Babylon that would end up taking the southern kingdom into a 70-year exile. Chapters 40 to 55 then address 
the situation many decades later, which God gave Isaiah insight to, where the southern kingdoms had been taken into exile, and he describes and prophesies to them about what that situation will be like for them. However, throughout these chapters, Isaiah foresees that these people remain disillusioned with the way Yahweh works and can't get too excited about going back to Jerusalem. So Israel are described in these chapters as a poor servant, a blind and deaf servant. And throughout these chapters, Isaiah describes an ideal servant, the servant of Yahweh, who is also the suffering servant. And he is described as one who will obey and will delight to do his will. And But this servant will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And then what we have in chapters 56 to 66 of Isaiah is a prophecy concerning the time when Israel had come back to the land and they were still unbelieving and doubtful that Yahweh's purposes for his people and to redeem creation would ever come about. So chapters 56 to 66 continue the themes of the rest of the book and come in the form of assurances that the kingship of Yahweh through his Messiah will be revealed, the city of God will be lifted up, and even the Gentiles will come into it to find Yahweh, the God of Israel, and salvation will come. So these chapters are a great encouragement for us as people living in a time when there's a lot of apathy, a lot of doubt that God's purposes will ever finally be accomplished. It's an encouragement to us to keep trusting and especially to keep trusting through his actions in Jesus and how we ought to live now in light of this certain fulfilment. So as we get towards the end of Isaiah, we've heard a lot about how God will bring about a new Jerusalem and restore his people. Now we get one of the great intercessory prayers of the Bible. A prayer where Isaiah appeals to God to make what he's promised happen. Uh, We saw back in chapter 62, verse 7, that Isaiah is commanding the people, give your God no rest from your prayers. Give God no rest from your prayers for the new Jerusalem and for the establishment of the kingdom of God. And here Isaiah is obeying his own command by giving an example of such praying. And really the great prayers of the Bible are calling on God to do what he's promised 
particularly as it relates to the circumstances of the people at the time. So Isaiah knows that Yahweh has promised to bring about a redeemed world with a glorious new Jerusalem at the centre. And so Isaiah prays that this would be progressing, this would happen, and that the people would invest in that future. And he starts off, as many great biblical prayers do, with remembering Yahweh's past actions, what he's already done, uh, which are grounded in his faithfulness and power. So we can see this, chapter 63, verses 7 to 9. We can see that Isaiah remembers Yahweh's faithfulness to the people that he has made his own. And straight away, some of the Jews reading this may have disputed Isaiah's contention here. That God has been good and compassionate towards Israel. Given their current circumstances of struggle and hardship under foreign rule. And in a way, this takes us back to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees a vision of Yahweh's holiness in the temple and he saw with clarity that he is a man of unclean lips who lives among people of uncleanness. And he saw this in contrast to the sheer holiness of God. Often the reason people struggle with this claim that God is compassionate and good is because we tend to vastly underestimate the horror of our sin and vastly underestimate the magnitude of God's mercy. So the expectation of verse 8 in regard to Isaiah remembering God's past actions, particularly in the Exodus was that Yahweh has embraced Israel as his family, as his people. The expectation was that this would cause them to be faithful to him. And obviously that's not an unreasonable expectation, is it? And interestingly in verse 9 it says, in all their affliction he was afflicted. The Lord identified with the suffering and hardship of his people and acted accordingly to save them and watch over them. But then, verses 10 to 14 describe the reality. It describes the fact that Israel didn't act faithfully. They acted falsely towards their God. And verse 10 makes this clear. They turned their redeeming God into their enemy. They grieved the very spirit of God. Yet in spite of all that, he still continued to focus his saving actions towards them. Verses 11 to 14. And the main one of those actions 
or the reference point for God's saving actions is the exodus from Egypt. In the Old Testament, the exodus is the ultimate redeeming action of God that demonstrates his willingness and power to save his people. And there are some key words here. Yahweh remembers his covenant. Doesn't mean he ever forgets it. It means he acts in light of it. He always acts in light of it. And he has... Also we see here this important idea that he has attached his name or reputation to his actions towards his people. Uh, One of the main outcomes of the Exodus is that it establishes the name of Yahweh. It reveals what sort of God he is in that he judges idolatry and wickedness He saves his own people, whom he calls his firstborn son. He's the God who lifts helpless slaves out of their slavery and brings down the idolatrous arrogant. So what Isaiah does now from chapter 63, verse 15, he's remembered God's past actions Now he's seeking God to do it again. To remember his past actions and continue to save his people. So in verse 15, he asks God to remember his compassion. And we can see the intensity of words here. Isaiah is appealing to Yahweh to look on the ruined state of his people And be deeply moved in such a way that it produces more saving action. And he also appeals to God as father. This is actually unusual in the Old Testament. But in saying that, he acknowledges that they are not looking like his children. There's some extraordinary statements here. The idea of verse 16 is that they have become so corrupt that Abraham himself would not recognise them. That's disturbing, isn't it? And it says that even Israel or Jacob the deceiver would be embarrassed by these people and would want to distance himself from them. This is a fundamental aspect of praying for ourselves, others and the church as a whole that we pray in the manner that Isaiah does here. Not that God would act because we deserve him to but because his character, reputation and purposes are at stake. See, God has revealed himself to the world by how he deals with his people, which includes severely disciplining their rebellion. And verses 17 to 19 continue this manner of praying, that he would act again to show the depths of his grace, because at this point in time, Israel are people 
who look like they have never been ruled by God in the first place. Verse 19. This is again quite a disturbing idea. Israel have been so shaped by the nations around them that they completely fail to be a separated people who display the unique glory of their God. It's like, they're like people that have never been ruled by God. And Isaiah is pleading that God act in the face of their wandering desires and hard-heartedness to recover this situation. And in a way, we're seeing something like this in our culture, aren't we? Australia doesn't correspond to Israel. We're not the covenant people. But Western civilization has benefited enormously from the impact of the gospel over centuries. The evidence that many people in our culture over time have been ruled by God is strong. But now we're turning our back on that as a culture and we're starting to see some of the impact of it. This is what Isaiah was saying about Israel of his time. They look like they have never been ruled by God. And so Isaiah makes this great appeal, chapter 64, verses 1 to 3. O Yahweh, that you would tear open the heavens. This is a violent action to rend them apart and step down into this world. It's a great prayer, isn't it? That Yahweh himself would come down and decisively act to put things right and restore his people. And verse 2, this is not for some trivial personal agenda. This is so that the nations might tremble and the world might see his glory. And again, verse 3, Isaiah is asking for this in light of the fact that he did it before at the time of the Exodus. And Isaiah has confidence that this prayer isn't a waste of time because of who God is, verses 4 to 5. Most of us learn who not to ask to do something, don't we? Uh, Because they may or may not do it. And if they do, they might not do it properly. So there's some people you just don't bother asking because they're ineffective people. But no one has ever heard or seen a God like the God of the Bible who acts for those who wait for him. And so verse 5, Isaiah continues to talk about the nature of God revealed in the way he deals with his people. But he does so in such a way that reveals the problem. See, the problem for Israel is that Yahweh welcomes those who rejoice in doing right. Uh, Who... Remember not just the rituals of religion, 
but the personal God who makes covenant with them. The primary problem for Israel is not the external political threat, it's the internal persistent rebellion that caused the exile to come about in the first place. So the end of verse 5, Isaiah says, we've been a long time in our sins. Shall we ever be saved? The idea here is that Israel have persistently acted in a way that they know would anger God. And so Isaiah rightly asked the question, is there a way back from this? Is there a way forward? Can such deliberate provocation and offensiveness meet with salvation? The the New Living Translation helpfully translates verse 5 this way. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways, but you have been very angry, angry with us for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? So verses 6 to 7 describe the situation in terms of where this leaves Israel. And he uses language from the law to describe them. They are filthy and unclean, which is a ritual words that mean they're unable to approach God and his presence. Even their attempts at righteousness are described here as filthy rags, polluted garments. And notice that Isaiah doesn't say those sinners over there. He recognises his own participation in all this as he did back in the temple in chapter 6 when he said, Oh God, I am a man of unclean lips. He says, We have become one like, like one that is unclean. All our deeds are like polluted garments. All our iniquities. And the situation is such, verse 7, that even in this desperate situation, there is no one who calls upon him or bothers mustering enough enthusiasm to seek after their God in spite of the terrible circumstances brought about by our sins. So again, verses 8 to 12, he appeals to Yahweh on the grounds of his own character and faithfulness, not any merit in his people. So he appeals in a number of ways. Firstly, he refers again to God as their father. They are his unique people. He made them to belong to him. He also says to God, 
to look at the ruin of the place that bears his name. And very importantly, he doesn't try to excuse the people's rebelliousness and wickedness. He asks that Yahweh not hold it against them forever. That he might do something to restore them as his people. And verse 12 has an important idea. Isaiah is saying to God, will you restrain yourself from doing something about this? Will you be silent? It's similar for us, isn't it, as we consider the church in Western culture. It's not something we can blame on someone else. It's us. We're part of it. If this church is no good, it's because you're here. It's because I'm preaching. This is the sort of praying that is needed. Lord, will you restrain yourself in view of the disgrace that is brought to the name of the Lord Jesus by our sin? But keep in mind, this is a dangerous prayer to pray (laughs) because it might mean discipline. It might mean refining actions that cause us to get rid of filth and idolatry and triviality and get up off our couches to pray. And of course, we know the extraordinary way, don't we, in which ultimately Yahweh has answered the prayer of Isaiah, that he might tear open the heavens and come down in an exodus-like event to save his enslaved people. He did it through a baby in a manger in Bethlehem which led to a cross outside Jerusalem. Can we see the irony? People complain that God sits in heaven while we suffer away down here. But God does step into this world And instead of sitting at his feet in wonder and thankfulness, we mock, despise, beat and crucify him. Colin Buchanan rightly sings, I spat on the king of kings. In contrast to this, some people go to their graves in misery singing, I did it my way. And Paul uses this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to contrast worldly wisdom with spiritual wisdom. The problem with the Corinthians was that they wanted to try and make the foolishness of the gospel of the cross fit into the wisdom of the world And in doing this, they diminished what God had done in Jesus. The idea that God has ultimately expressed and revealed his name and saving purposes in Jesus of Nazareth, who dies by capital punishment on a Roman implement of torture, 
is in worldly terms incredibly foolish. That's why even today people are always trying to make the message of the cross sound more trendy, sound more acceptable. But according to Paul's use of this passage of Isaiah in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, true spirituality is that by the Holy Spirit we recognise and respond rightly to the fact that Yahweh has torn open the heavens, come down to a food trough in Bethlehem to die on a cross outside Jerusalem, which brings about the ultimate exodus from the slavery of our sin, ultimately resulting in a renewed creation. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the insight and prophecy of Isaiah who saw that something far more radical than an exodus from Egypt and a return from exile was needed to arouse and change your people. Uh, We thank you for the ways in which Isaiah anticipated how you would tear open the heavens and step into this world in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please cause us by your spirit to see with clarity uh, what you've done in him uh, to make people from all nations, your people. Uh, Please help us to respond rightly to these truths, uh, to continue to seek that you act in light of your saving uh, mercy through Christ. Uh, Please continue your great work in us in these ways for the sake and name of Jesus. Amen.